Thanks so much, Dylan. Um, I'm still trying to decide if this whole marriage symposium is really just a part of a grand hazing process <laughs> that I don't know about yet. Um, but if that's the case, then the joke is on them because I am actually really happy to take one for the team on this topic. Um, Healthy sexuality is something that has burdened my heart for a long time, and so getting to be with you today talking about this feels like a really deep privilege, um, but it also feels super humbling because addressing a topic of this breadth and depth and complexity and then doing that with a mind toward all of the experiences that we bring into this room on this topic is a pretty daunting task. And then trying to do it in 30 minutes is impossible, right? And so I have made peace with the fact that I cannot be all things to all people on this one, but that this is the start of a conversation. It's the start of what I hope are many conversations that you're going to be taking into your homes and throughout our church as we move forward from today. If you've spent much time around here or a church like this one, you have probably gotten some sort of a grasp on a biblical sexual ethic. We believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and that sex is only to be enjoyed in those parameters. And by default, that concept lends itself pretty well to discussions of what not to do, right? We expend a lot of energy trying not to screw up in this area of our lives, especially when it comes to our years of singleness. And so that implicitly makes it pretty easy to assume that once sex is being enjoyed within its proper place, all will be well, right? We are going to say the vows and put on the rings and this magical switch will be flipped in which all of our sexual brokenness will be repaired. All of the impact of our past trauma will be eradicated. Our struggles with sexual sin will end. And all of this will meet all of our expectations in this like mind-blowingly amazing way until death do us part, right? Um, but unless you got married last weekend, which did anybody get married last weekend? You never know around Frontline. We have a lot of weddings. Um, unless you got married last weekend, you probably have figured out that this just isn't true, right? Marriage in and of itself does not repair or restore or remediate the impacts of a fallen world on our sexuality. And it isn't a guarantee that that part of our lives will be smooth sailing from that point on. That realization can feel incredibly disappointing and even infuriating, especially for those of us who grew up in a purity culture who did all the right things and followed all the right rules and expected to be rewarded for our efforts. Marriage also can't insulate us from future difficulty in this area. Even those of us who got to come into marriage with relatively light baggage are going to hit a point at some point where we're in new territory, the lay of the land has changed, and a marriage is going to go through different seasons in multiple iterations over time. And when it comes to these everyday nitty-gritty realities and challenges to the flourishing of sexual intimacy within marriage, we tend to go radio silent. In a recent conversation with a family member who's a um, licensed marriage and family therapist, he shared with me that the most common observation that he makes in couples who are struggling in this part of their marriage is their inability to communicate with one another about it. Smart, capable, educated, successful adults have a really hard time talking about this most intimate thing that we do together. 
Some of us might be just motivated by a desire to spare our spouse's feelings or to preserve unity by just not talking about it. And others might struggle to be vulnerable or even to have the vocabulary and the language to articulate what exactly they're experiencing, whether that's in conversations about sex or even when trying to communicate in a moment of a sexual encounter. That absence of communication extends beyond a couple and into our Christian communities as well, doesn't it? We love to proclaim the truth that God cares about every aspect of our lives and that he uses community as a means of bringing sanctification and refinement and flourishing. And yet, so often we leave this particular topic completely off the table. We might check in with each other vaguely about sexual sin for accountability purposes, but when's the last time you had a conversation with close friends about how well you're flourishing in this part of your married lives? Relationally and corporately, we struggle to communicate honestly about sex within marriage. And in the absence of that direct communication, we try to diagnose and treat ourselves by seeking out information from elsewhere. And historically, that role has been readily filled by Christian teachers and authors whose counsel is sometimes informed more by generalizations and stereotypes than by research or even right biblical interpretation. If you've spent any amount of time in Christian culture, you've probably heard some of these principles. Women have emotional needs and men have physical needs. Women need to meet men's physical needs Otherwise, they're going to be tempted towards pornography and affairs. Men are more visually stimulated than women. Men have a higher libido than women. Women just don't have the same need for sex. Never refuse your spouse. What you really need to do to fix that problem is just have more sex. And while these generalizations all contain an element of truth, they lack the nuance demanded by God's unique design for men and women made in the image of God. Generalizations alone can hinder effective communication and leave wives and husbands feeling confused and broken, assuming that something is wrong with them when they don't fit the mold, even though that mold might be really helpful for someone else. And they also feel isolated and alone, both within their marriage and within their larger community. But when we see married sex described in scripture, we see anything but a generalization. Genesis 4.1 tells us that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. We see that same word knew used in a similar way several times in scripture. Once uh, while serving as a camp counselor at a camp for inner city teenagers from Boston and New York City, my husband was leading them through a Bible study on the birth of Jesus, and he made the rookie mistake of asking them what it meant when it said that Joseph had not known Mary. And after a moment of silence, one of the kids piped up from his bunk and said in his thick New York Italian accent, well, that's easy. It means there were no banging going on. <laughs> and Jonathan had to admit that the kid was right. <laughs> but that word, new, means so much more than that rudimentary description that we're all familiar with. That word in the Hebrew is yada. And while it can refer to a sexual interaction, we see it 
multiple times in scripture with a meaning far richer than that. And I think that its use can give us a really beautiful vision of intimacy that will blow any generalization out of the water. What if sex between Christian husbands and wives could embody this full sense of yada, which means to know by experience, to learn to know, to perceive and see, to find out and discern, to consider, to know how and be skillful in, to be instructed, and to reveal oneself and make oneself known. Of course, even the culture of the world can affirm this value of being fully and authentically known, right? Those are some of the biggest buzzwords of our day. So what makes this concept of knowing countercultural in the Christian marriage is when we pursue knowledge of our spouse, even in the bedroom, with a heart of selfless love and service. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 instructs us to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Matthew 20, 28 reminds us that Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. In Ephesians, Paul goes so far as to urge husbands specifically to love their wives as their own bodies, and that he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, here is where I want to touch on a little tender spot. If a biblical sexual ethic for marriage is characterized by loving service in the pursuit of fully knowing our spouse, let me be clear that this is a mutual endeavor. Christian teaching on sex within marriage has long utilized this description of sex as loving service to a spouse, but too often that message has been directed primarily to women. It's an easy message to send when other generalizations are also at play. If women don't really enjoy sex or need it or want it that much, then of course they have to adopt this one-directional servant attitude. If women aren't susceptible to lust or pornography and other forms of sexual sin as men are, then of course it's their duty to serve their husbands by providing an outlet or a means of rescue from this overwhelming biological need. And if those needs are viewed as essential to survival or a temptation that men are unequipped to resist, then by all means, a woman should never refuse her responsibility to inoculate her husband from his potential moral failure. This one-dimensional view of sex as a woman's service to her husband, often backed with a reckless use of God's word, has been used by our enemy and our accuser to do massive damage to the children of God. Men, please do not hear this as a blanket accusation because I know that most of you in this room are just as disgusted and heartbroken by that reality as I am. But just in case someone here needs to hear this, let me borrow the words of a few Christian leaders of our day. Husbands, your wife is not your personal porn star. She is not your vial of methadone to numb your addiction. She is not responsible for your sexual sin. She is your co-equal, your co-heir, a daughter of the king. Her needs and her pleasure are as important as your own. Our sexual needs are not akin to food and water and shelter, and you are not without the Holy Spirit who equips every believer to flee from sin. Wives, as one author put it, you cannot free someone from their sin. That was Jesus' job on the cross and not yours in the bedroom. Loving service that leads to deep, intimate knowledge of one another is for wives 
and husbands. So as we reframe sex within marriage as this ongoing process of loving service in the pursuit of fully knowing our spouse, I want to give you five categories to be thinking about and talking about together. These are some of the areas in which we should be continuously getting to know our spouse and areas where we should be revealing ourselves with honesty. So first, know your spouse's areas of sexual brokenness, sin, and trauma. Scripture is clear that we have an enemy who is actively at work attempting to deform and destroy and divide what God has created and intended. Many of us entered marriage with a distorted view of sex, sometimes rooted in our own battles with sexual sin, sometimes in sins committed against us and the repercussions that we carry as a result. And to further complicate matters, many of us are carrying both of those things at the same time. We have been sinned against in our bodies, and we have used our bodies to sin against others. And painful memories can persist, and our bodies can carry instinctive responses that are rooted in these past experiences. And consider this a little parenthetical comment, if you will. When it comes to sexual sin, we've been taught that the struggles of lust and pornography are men's struggles, but lust and pornography are human struggles. Yes, generally, men are highly sensitive to visual stimulation, but women are too, just as we are susceptible to other forms of arousing material. Men do not have the corner on the market of sexual sin, and too many Christian women, even married Christian women, are waging war against sin alone and in shame because we've been taught that this is a man's battle. So for men and women, Pornography and other forms of sexual sin distort our expectations of sex and they rob us of the opportunity to enjoy sex in reality. End parentheses. <laughs> of course, we are really quick to isolate how past sin and trauma can negatively impact our marriages, but I also want to acknowledge that we can be just as impacted by a legalistic idolization of purity as we can by an utter disregard for purity. Some of us need to reorient our minds to believe that sex really is a good gift from God and not a dirty act to be ashamed of. We've spent years exercising obedience and setting up barriers for our minds and bodies to prevent arousal, and then we struggle to hurdle those barriers once sex is permissible. When unaddressed, all of these areas of sexual brokenness can have profound implications on a couple's ability to share in a safe and satisfying sexual experience. But as author David Pallison so beautifully puts it, all sorts of sins can carry on within marriage. All sorts of remnant heartaches and fears can still play out. Christ's grace sets out to do something more multifaceted than simply charging the unambiguously guilty and rescuing the unambiguously innocent. He enters sympathetically into the totality of the human experience and he touches all of our sins and all of our afflictions he redeems both the wayward and the wounded. Praise be to God for that. So have you shared with your spouse the areas in which you feel that your view of sex may have been distorted? Have you been transparent with your spouse about past or ongoing temptations to sexual sin? Have you told your spouse about your difficulty in finding freedom to view sex as good? Have you pursued counsel in areas that feel like a persistent struggle to overcome? Next, you need to know your particular spouse's wiring when it comes to their sexuality. 
Here's where our theology or our view of God matters a lot when it comes to bodies and sex. God is good. And God made our bodies and called them good. He made those good bodies with intricate parts that are able to create human life, yes, but also able to experience intense pleasure in a variety of ways, sometimes with body parts that have no other use other than pleasure. And those parts can then culminate in this bizarrely wonderful experience that we call an orgasm. God made all of that, and it is good. And I think it's safe to say that it is a good thing for Christian couples to figure out how to get really good at sex together. But it isn't just enough to know about sex, right? Although that's important. As we've already established, generalizations um, really dominate the discussion of and the information that is available to us. And even that can be beneficial, right? It's, it's a good starting place to know about potential differences between men and women. But as any good researcher will tell you, there are exceptions and outliers in any population of study. So think back to your like basic psychology and science classes, and at some point you saw a true bell curve, right? And that bell curve tries to represent the majority at the peak, and then the outliers are there represented in those skinny little points at the edges. And so knowing your spouse means knowing where he or she falls in that range of all of those generalizations that you've heard about sex. When we fail to do this, we can make some assumptions that hinder our enjoyment at best or lead to a lot of hurt at worst. For example, a generalization would say that men have stronger levels of sexual desire than women and are ready to go like microwaves at any time. But let's say there's a husband who desires sex less frequently. He's not addicted to porn. He's not having an affair. He enjoys having sex with his wife. He just doesn't fit that stereotype of the dude who's ready to go like three times a day. But meanwhile, his wife, who knows that stereotype too, is surprised that his interest level isn't quite what she expected going into marriage. And she doesn't fall into that stereotype of a woman who isn't that interested in sex. In fact, she enjoys it and would like to have it more often. She knows he's not watching porn or having an affair. And so based on all of those generalizations, there's only one logical conclusion, right? Something is wrong. Either she's over here feeling like a, a nymphomaniac who somehow still isn't enough to spark the interest of her husband, or he's over here feeling ashamed and questioning his masculinity because he's not obsessed with sex all day, every day. And you can see really quickly how these kinds of generalizations could wreak some havoc in a marriage. How different could this be, though, if through honest communication, that couple articulated their unique preferences in a way that allowed them to curate their own flourishing sex life together? As one author put it, what matters is not what some men or women might feel. What matters is what you and your spouse feel. So here are a few things that you should find out about your spouse. Does your spouse have a spontaneous or a responsive libido? Now, this gets far more specific than asking if you have a high or low sexual desire. People with a spontaneous libido feel a physiological need that is physically frustrating when that need is not met. 
Now, others would have a responsive libido where they might not feel that physiological need and tension to the same extent, but once things get going, arousal kicks in and they're able to really enjoy sex. When we use that familiar microwave and crockpot analogy, what we're really trying to say is that men often have a spontaneous libido while women often have a responsive libido that takes a little more time. But there are exceptions to every generalization and lots of ways to be normal here. However, if you feel like your level of sexual desire is exceptionally low or non-existent, please talk to your doctor about that. There are a lot of physiological reasons why that might be the case and it's worth pursuing some help there. Next, know your spouse's ideal frequency of sex and find a general standard for your life together. This too varies widely between individuals and it doesn't always fall neat and tidy within those gender stereotypes. Some people would love to have sex every day and others once or twice a week and others even less frequently. Now, common advice is for the spouse who desires less frequency to rise to the occasion and meet the spouse's desire who has more, a desire for more frequency. But if our sexual ethic for marriage is loving service to one another, then it follows that sometimes one spouse will refrain from sexual desire in loving service, and sometimes another spouse will kindle their sexual desire in loving service. As Sheila Gregoire describes, if mutual serving is the norm, then libido differences like this don't pose the same threat that they do in marriages with less sacrificial giving. In marriages marked by mutual serving, each spouse can delight in meeting the other's needs, knowing that their needs will also be met because they can trust the other's goodwill. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.5 does say that we should not deprive one another. But deprivation is different from declining. Deprivation implies a chronic withholding of a good and necessary thing, and the absence of that thing will lead to atrophy and malnourishment and damage over time. But that's different than a momentary refusal with a legitimate reason. So let's not misuse that verse with selfish motives. And speaking of selfish motives, Know that your spouse's boundaries and you need to know what those are and respect them at all times without exception. Consent is for marriage too. And sadly, sexual assault and rape can occur between married couples. Love never receives pleasure from another person's pain or embarrassment. So if this dynamic of abuse is occurring in your marriage, please reach out for some help. Lastly on this point, Know your spouse's areas of physical pain or difficulty achieving pleasure. Sometimes our bodies just don't work the way that we wish they would. This might be the result of trauma or it might just be simple anatomy and physiology. Some of us in our efforts to be obedient in this area have really conditioned ourselves to halt the natural arousal process and then once sex is permissible within marriage, we don't quite know how to let that process play out. And that can make for sex that is really unsatisfying and even painful. We're all fairly familiar with male sexual dysfunction, thanks to all the ads plastered on our televisions for magical pills. Um, but I have yet to see much public discussion of things like anorgasmia or vaginismus. 
vaginismus is a condition where involuntarily muscle spasms interfere with intercourse and cause tremendous pain. Anorgasmia is a persistent inability to achieve orgasm despite responding to sexual stimulation. Sex should be mutually pleasurable and enjoyed without unwanted pain. So if you or your spouse are experiencing difficulty achieving orgasm or experience any kind of physiological pain during sex, there are specialists who can help with that. Pelvic floor physiotherapists in particular are uniquely trained to help with these issues, and there are some doctors and therapists who specialize in these things as well. The mutual enjoyment of sex in your marriage matters, and it is worth pursuing. Lastly, know your spouse's season of life and be realistic about its impact on intimacy. One of the reasons that communication is so important in marriage, even when it comes to the bedroom, is that life brings constant changes. What worked in one season of life just might not work in another. The spouse who once had that higher level of spontaneous libido might now have a lower level of responsive libido, and that might change back and forth several times over the course of a lifetime together. The usual go-to time or setting for having sex in one season of life might shift to something entirely different in another. Unresolved areas of tension can build over time and have an impact. And then just the stresses of life and fatigue can lead us sometimes to some selfishness and laziness when Netflix or scrolling our phones is our default mode of winding down rather than connecting with our spouse. And even still, physical changes and illnesses the welcoming of children and other circumstances might even necessitate abstinence for a time. When we've carried an idealized or idolized view of sex, those changes can be really crushing, right? Or when we have minimized the value or importance of sex, we risk letting an integral part of our marriage become a casualty of our circumstances. Viewing sex rightly helps us to both prioritize this part of our marriage, but also to hold it really loosely through changing seasons, knowing that the ultimate expression of our commitment to one another is that loving service. Sheila Gregoire put it this way, and buckle up, as this quote includes some words that I don't think have ever been on this screen before. Um, But I think it is the best description of the realities of sex in a long-lasting marriage. Being hot, young, and not on your period or not pregnant is an incredibly short period of time in a woman's life. And I have no idea why young men and young women contemplating marriage are not told in the most blunt of terms that being ready for marriage and sex means accepting all of those changes. Bodies change. Waists expand. We lose the six-pack abs. Erections may not be as hard or as reliable. Lubrication can decrease. Menopause can cause hormones to tank. We get tired. We get stressed. Women can be bloody and torn and tight. But even in all of this, we are still us. We are still a couple. Let's prioritize sex and intimacy while being kind to our spouse. So what season of life are you in today? What are the implications for that reality on your marriage and on your sex life? How can you lovingly serve your spouse where they are right now without the ulterior motive of just setting yourself up to get rewarded in the bedroom? 
As we wrap up, there are two last things I want you to know, but they aren't about your spouse. First, know who, in addition to your spouse, you can talk to. In our attempts to be honoring of our spouses and discreet, we tend to avoid this topic in our discipleship conversations unless it pertains to accountability for sexual sin. But what if a few of our close, safe friendships became places where our questions and our challenges and wounds could be met with grace and love and gospel-centered counsel that fosters intimacy both with your spouse and with Christ? So often, God brings transformation in our hearts and lives through the tool of friendship. I am so fortunate to have a crew of ride-or-die women in my life with whom everything is on the table. And our sex lives are a regular topic of conversation. We have spurred one another on to flourish in this area of our lives through a lot of stuff. We have done that through miscarriages and pregnancies and years of raising little babies and sickness and suffering. Um, And I know that each of our marriages is better because of our friendship. There are a couple of factors at play that make this work. First, these women are mature believers. They are rooted in God's word, and they regularly point each other back to Jesus and back to our spouses. And second, we have a mutual understanding that all of our husbands are wonderful, godly, respectable men, and that nothing shared will change that view. It's a safe, confidential place And I'm prayerful that here at Frontline Church, we can create similar safe spaces in our community. Also know that our leadership team of elders and deacons is a safe starting place for bringing community into your life as well. Finally, and most importantly, know that God really does care about all of this. He delights to meet us in our brokenness. He delights to comfort us in our pain. He delights to heal and restore. He delights to see his children flourishing and enjoying one of his best gifts. And yet, he often seems content to do this really slowly and patiently over the course of years and decades. Just like the rest of our sanctification, letting our sexuality be made new by the transformative power of Christ takes time and patience as does the lifelong pursuit of loving and serving and knowing our spouses. As David Pallison describes it, sometimes this process has us leaping with seasons of massive growth. Sometimes we're just running or walking. Sometimes we're trudging or crawling. Sometimes we get stuck in gridlock or fall asleep or wander off or even just face plant for a bit. But what matters most is which direction we are facing as we go. If we're oriented toward knowing and being known by Christ and knowing and being known by our spouse, then we're on the right track. I'd like to close by reading a prayer over you that I think beautifully sums up this vision of what biblical married sexuality can be. So if you'd close your eyes with me and if you'd like, open your hands and just receive these words. Make of our marriages a holy habitation, O God. Ever dwell in us and between us, teaching us how to be to one another a truer husband and a truer wife, your mercy mediating, your love surrounding, your spirit quickening our hearts unto conviction and repentance and forgiveness, unto compassion, kindness, and generosity, 
that we would in tenderness seek always to know one another more and in tenderness allow ourselves to be more known. Amen.